0: We are wrapping up 1 Corinthians 13 this morning. And in a particular passage that has been powerful and meaningful, Paul gets to the heart of the matter with the Corinthians at this point. Perhaps you have heard of the Peter Pan syndrome. Uh... It's a popular psychology term describing young adults, particularly males, who cannot seem to grow up. Maybe you've known a few. Dr. Dan Kiley coined the term in his 1983 book, The Peter Pan Syndrome, Men Who Have Never Grown Up. And people with characteristics of the Peter Pan Syndrome may refuse to adopt adult responsibility. They have difficulty maintaining healthy relationships. They have a fond nostalgia for their youth. And most of us have some nostalgia, but this is overboard for them. While most people may long for the simplicity of childhood from time to time, people with Peter Pan syndrome may have difficulty living a typical adult life. In fact, they're almost certain to. Now, Peter Pan syndrome is not a formal diagnosis, Rather, it is an informal term that has that some psychologists have been using since 1983. Now, according to Kylie, people with Peter Pan syndrome behave irresponsibly, may display narcissistic behavior, the world revolves around me. Uh, this he says makes it challenging for them to have functional, social, professional, and romantic relationships. And he stated that because people with Peter Pan syndrome refuse to accept responsibility, they tend to blame everybody else for their problems. They also have difficulty expressing their emotions, which contribute to their relationship issues in life. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he was dealing with a church full of people, men and women. We we're not refusing to grow up physically, or maybe even mentally. He was dealing with the church, men and women alike, that seemed to be refusing to grow up spiritually. And he addressed this issue in our text this morning. We'll be looking at First 1 Corinthians 13,9 through20, Would you please stand as we hear the word of the Lord? And please, listen with your hearts as well as your ears. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish ways behind me. Now we see through a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So Paul essentially was telling the Corinthians, it's time to grow up. It is time to grow up. And folks, it's not just the Corinthians who had this problem. Paul used the image of a child moving into adulthood calling them to maturity. And the truth is, folks, throughout the church ages, for centuries, you could find people who simply did not grow spiritually. Sometimes it was rebellion in their hearts. Sometimes they just never were coaxed or helped along. There weren't people to disciple them. Today, we need to be certain that we are growing spiritually. We need to become loving grown-ups in Jesus Christ. And again, I'm not talking about chronologically necessarily here. To be honest, I've known some very young people who were far more mature spiritually than some people who were toward the end of their life. We need to grow. And if we're going to grow, if we're going to move forward, as angel was saying, in our walk, There's certain principles that we must understand to grow out of our text. And I apologize for the first one. I'm going to try really hard not to make direct eye contact because I don't want anybody accusing me of, of saying, well, this is you. So first, we must acknowledge that we do not know everything yet. No, there were no amens. Uh, Well, there are not a lot anyway, but we must acknowledge we don't know everything yet. Now, what is Paul trying to get at? Why does Paul he breaks for a moment that discussion of love and comes to this statement that we prophesy in part and we know in part? Well, what was happening here, Paul indicated that the time of perfect knowledge had not arrived. He points to two important spiritual gifts. Prophecy and knowledge. Both of which would have been very important to the Corinthians. Prophecy, having a word from God to speak into the lives of others. Knowledge, having deep knowledge of God and all that He plans for our lives. Those were important. But to insist that they had somehow arrived, which apparently the Corinthians were doing, because they had spectacular gifts, or they had what they thought were the best gifts, revealed that they were very far from maturity. Paul says prophecy and knowledge can only reveal so much. We will not know all of the mysteries of God. But he said, You're acting like, each one of you seems to be acting like, mine is the most important, and I know that. They were acting like childish kids. Please notice that he's using the word childish. Nowhere does Paul say childlike. You remember Jesus said, if you want to come into the kingdom, you need to be like a child. And he wasn't talking about a child's innocence, but he was talking about a child's willingness to trust. Here Paul is talking about childishness. You know what happens when there's a room full of toys scattered about and two children come into that room and it doesn't matter what toy they pick up, that's the toy the other child wants to play with. And arguments and fights ensue and it becomes a problem. This is the way they're acting. They're acting like children who think, I don't need to know my ABCs. I don't need to know what one plus one is. I'm perfectly happy where I am. And you're trying to make me learn new stuff. And there are children who rebel. They were holding themselves in high esteem. And they were looking down on virtually everybody else in the congregation. Jay. Used to, uh, used to joke that God loves everybody, but I'm his favorite. I mean, you remember Jay Rustin very well. The Corinthians seem to believe it. We're God's favorite. He's given us the best gifts. We have the most. We know more about God than anybody else. And again, without trying to make eye contact, the arrogance. That follows a know-it-all mentality. Is harmful to the church. It can be a dangerous thing. When Christians insist. It must be my way. Because my way is the only way. Now please hear me carefully. There are certain bedrock beliefs and convictions. That define the Christian faith. All denominations that hold on to these truths, folks, are are being very careful with what God reveals. The Trinity, the idea that our God manifests Himself. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The deity of Christ. If I were to stand before you in the next month and tell you folks I've been wrong all along, Jesus was just a man, it would be time to form a search committee. Because I would have denied one of the most basic truths. The virgin birth. The atonement. The death of Christ on the cross. And the resurrection. Are are so essential to what we believe. Salvation by grace through faith. Defines the gospel. And then the hope of Christ's return. That we're not going to be abandoned. He is coming to get us and take us home. Somewhere. It may be a thousand years from now, and if it is, none of us will be here to welcome him. But those of us who know him will have come home to him because he defeated death. These are essential doctrines. But Christians will argue often about things that are not essential. When we argue that our preference for music is the key to having meaningful worship. We are either supposed to sing all hymns or all praise choruses, depending on what we prefer. And the moment we stray from what we want, we get huffy or we think, well, that wasn't very worshipful. And we had a good dose of both today. And I want to tell you, thank you, Charmel. Charmel picked songs, as you will hear, that anticipated what the things I'll be saying today. And if we got rid of hymns, we're getting rid of songs that have stood the test of centuries, folks. If we get rid of praise choruses, we can lose maybe what Paul was talking about, singing spiritual songs, singing songs straight from the heart. So, our preference of music must be my way. That's arrogant. Our favorite translation of Scripture is the only authoritative one? Yeah. There are folks who say the King James Version of the Bible is the only true Bible. There are some who say the NIV is the best translation out there. And some say, no, it's the ESV, the English Standard Version. And folks will argue. I once served down the road from a church that had a sign out their front True gospel preaching from the King James Version only. And with that one sign, you knew everything you needed to know about the church. Folks, what really is frustrating is for for people who make these, these arguments, my translation is the right one. The vast majority cannot translate the original languages. They're repeating what they've heard. How about, and we don't have a whole lot of, in fact, I've not been aware of any problem in Bay Vista, this next issue, but I've known, I've been in churches that were, if you're not wearing the right clothes to church, you can turn around and leave. And the right clothes in church may include everything from a suit and tie, to every woman in the congregation better have on a dress. I remember once going to a, a, a concert, the Lanny Wolf Trio. Lanny Wolf, uh, it was Pentecostal. and We were going, it was being sponsored by the Pentecostal Church in Paris, one of the largest. Rachel and I went and I looked at my wife, who always wore long hair up until uh, her probably her late 20s. I said, just put a dress on, we don't want to offend anybody. And we got there early because it was open seating, and we sat down, and all of a sudden I was aware, for over 30 minutes, I was the only man anywhere in sight with facial hair. I didn't have a full beard, but I had sideburns about to hear, and I had my mustache, and I I was so scared they were going to run me out. Thankfully, they did. But folks, when we are arguing my way is best, and if you do not conform to what I want, then you cannot be part of who I am, we're showing our immaturity. And then we're like rowdy children on the playground. You know that one kid who seems to control most of them? We're going to play tag today. We're not going to play hide and seek. And if you don't want to play tag, you can go over to the baby slide. And that's what's happening at Corinth. And that's what can happen in a church today. So what do we do about this? How do we fight this tendency to think, I do know. I am better. Well, we should always approach one another with loving humility. Loving you mean Why would Paul bring up knowledge? Well, the Corinthians were Greek, and Greeks had high esteem for knowledge. Uh, they produced some of the most famous philosophers of all times, and they wanted to know the deep things, the hidden things. And so they wanted knowledge, and Paul said, You can't have it all here. None of us have perfect knowledge. None of us live perfect lives. Everybody in this room has room for growth. I haven't haven't done this in a while, so get ready for a physical demonstration that will help you on Just really quickly take your pulse. Okay, if it's beating, you have more to learn. You have more to learn. I dread the idea of ever having the hubris, the pride to think, I've learned everything I can in this world, and particularly, I've learned everything there is about God. None of us have perfect knowledge. All of us need to grow. So none of us should ever be found putting one another down. Saying, I'm better than you. Saying, I know more than you. Taking our pride and lifting ourselves and putting ourselves on pedestals. In humility. Think about all that he said in this chapter. In humility, we build each other up. Because I can guarantee you almost everybody in this room knows more about the internal combustion machine than i do and i'm okay with that we need to grow that's our first principle acknowledging that we haven't arrived acknowledging that we don't know everything yet that there is room for growth in our lives there's room for coming and even if if we live To be 120 years old, we still will not learn everything. Because Paul says, we prophesy in part and we know in part. We all have room for growth. Our second principle, second, we should walk with an eye toward our future fulfillment. I love what Paul says here. We prophesy in part and we know in part, but there's coming a day there's coming a day when we will have complete knowledge. You see, Paul was trying to tell them something very important. And he pointed to a time when believers would have complete knowledge. I have recently discovered another new translation that I'm becoming familiar with that I truly enjoy. It's the Passion Translation. And the when they describe their heart to do this, they talk about the methods, and, but, they're, but they're saying what we're trying to do is capture the passion of the Word of God. Listen to what Paul said in verse 12 in the passion. For now we see but a faint reflection of riddles and mysteries as though reflected in a mirror. But One day we will see face to face. My understanding isn't complete now, but one day I will understand everything just as everything about me has been fully understood. The wonderful thing about that, the one who has fully understood us is God and he knows us and loves us anyway. You see, Paul was letting the Corinthians know that one day they would have knowledge. One day they would be made complete when Christ came for them or they went to him in death. And he says, until that day, knowledge would be incomplete, but in that day, they would know the Lord in complete knowledge. And in that complete knowledge, there would be no room for someone to say, well, I'm better than you. Because we will all stand before God completely and totally equal. People who have been saved by grace. People who now are experiencing the Presence of God in His fullness. And all of our attention won't be on what your gift was or what my gift was. It will be on our God and King. All will be equal before the Lord. All would finally walk in complete unity of heart and mind. And there's something incredibly encouraging here. I'm glad that Paul let me know, Danny, you're never going to know everything here. That takes a lot of pressure off of me. When I was a 20-year-old pastor, I thought I had to know everything. People would ask me a question, and I didn't want to say I don't know. I, I just, my very first church, I had a man, first time it ever happened, everybody shook their heads. But in the middle of my sermon, Brother Hobart stood up. Pastor? And he asked me a question that had nothing to do with the sermon. And everybody's like this, okay. And as long as he was physically able, that would happen from time to time. And I felt obligated to answer the question. At 65, I am very comfortable saying, I don't know. I think that comes with wisdom. There will come a day. And what does that mean? Uncertainties will vanish. When Christ brings us home. See until that day. We will have questions we cannot answer. Until that day. We will deal. Struggle with doubt. Do I really love him? Does he really love me? When that day comes. We will bask. In the wonder of what it means to belong to God. What it means to be part of the body of Christ in its completion. And in that day, all fear, all struggle, all pain, all tears of sorrow will be gone. For We will be face to face with our Lord and God. So as we face all these issues that we struggle with to understand, know there comes a day when we will be free from those uncertainties and we can rejoice in the promise of a day when we are finally being all we are meant to be. The closer I get to God, the more aware I am of how far away I am. It's a phenomenon with anyone who wants to grow in Christ. Things that used to not bother us suddenly become very important. And there is so much joy in me. Because the struggle will one day be over. Think of it. Full fellowship with God and each other. And we will not be asking each other, well, are you Baptist in heaven? We will not be saying, well, did you belong to, to the right Baptist church? Because, you know, we even divide about that. We'll be brothers and sisters standing before God. We will be free from the very presence of evil. We will be walking in holiness. When the book of Revelation talks about the time when there will be no more pain, I don't understand that. And I know a large majority of you here don't understand that either. I can't conceive of a life without pain. It's such a part of who we are in our frail physical bodies. But there will be a day when that will be over. So Paul gives a word of hope. That one day we will know as we're known, which means one day we will understand. One day we will be free. And then the very heart of everything he's had to say. Our third principle, which may be the toughest one for us to follow. Third, we need to commit to putting away childish things. We need to commit to putting away our childish ways. Again, not childlike. I don't want to ever lose the wonder of childhood. I don't want to ever want to... Lo- I-, I remember not... Well, sometime last year I was driving home and it's raining. And I saw a double rainbow. And I got so excited. I was just... Shouting out loud how beautiful and wonderful it was. And there wasn't anybody to hear me. And it was so frustrating. So I went in the house and quickly called my daughter. I just saw a double rainbow. I don't ever want to lose that. But Paul said there comes a time. We need to put away the childish things. And Paul used a personal illustration. To show the way to the Corinthians. When I was a child. Now there are some biblical scholars. Many of whom I respect who believe that verse 11 should be interpreted in view of verse 12. That Paul is actually talking about that moment in time when we will be fully known as we are known now. And this is just kind of a way to get there. But listen again. Again, I want to read from the Passion Translation. Listen to verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke about childish matters, for I saw things like a child and reasoned like a child. The day came when I matured and I set aside my childish ways. Paul was speaking here in past tense. He's not looking toward the future. He's just saying this is the story of my life. When I was a child, I acted like a child. But when I reach adulthood, if I am still acting like a child, there's something wrong. I believe Paul... And this verse was explaining why the rest of the chapter was so important. Because if we don't love each other. It's the highest illustration of childishness in our lives. And we will always be thinking first and foremost of ourselves. I believe this was Paul's way. Somewhat discreetly. of Challenging the Corinthians to do the same. Now he was saying I grew up. And the implication is. You need to start growing up Corinthians. And he had continued this. In the next chapter. Listen to. 1 Corinthians 14.20. If you have any doubt that he's telling him you need to grow up. 1 Corinthians 14.20 out of the NIV. Brothers, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants. But in your own thinking, be adults. A little baby is not thinking of how they're going to get rid of mom and dad. A little baby is not thinking about joining a motorcycle gang. Paul says an infant doesn't have evil desires as such. So it's okay to be like a baby there. Don't let evil reign in your heart or rule every decision you make. But you need to be growing up. In your thinking, in your understanding, in your spiritual growth, you need to grow up. And that's what he's saying in verse 11. It was time for these believers to move away from their childish ways. It was time for them to grow up in faith and in their fellowship. Clearly, they would not become perfect here. Just like this church doesn't do this perfectly. That awaited the future ahead. But they had to be growing and moving forward. It's time to start acting like a grown-up believer in Christ. It's time to live for Him. To love for Him. To serve for him. As you reach out to others. Now the truth about the Corinthian church. When I look at the Corinthians correspondence. It it lets me know something. The Corinthian church reveals the childish things we must outgrow. If you've ever done an in-depth reading of 1 and 2 Corinthians. You understand why Paul is saying you've got to put away the childish things. It becomes very clear. As we take a deep look at this church, we can see what's expected of us. You see, this church was full of division. What we sometimes call cliques. There were groups. And they were clearly identifiable. Some of them would identify with, well, who's the greatest preacher of all time? I am of Apollos. I am of Paul. Paul said, Some of you are even saying, I am of Christ, which implies nobody else is. They were arguing in their division who has the best gift? I do. That was their argument. I can do exciting, spectacular things. You just have a gift of service. I can speak in tongues, or I can work miracles, or I can do all of these things that Paul said in the first verses of this chapter. If I do those things and I do not have love, I'm nothing. Who is the most spiritual? All of these folks, they fail to love each other. And that is the reason this chapter is here. This is not Paul digressing. He's not writing about spiritual gifts. Oh, oh wait, wait, I thought about something. This is a parenthesis. He puts it right in the middle of the discussion of spiritual gifts because that's one of the key areas of their arguments against each other. And He says, desire the best gifts, but I'm going to show you a more important way right now. And it's the way of love. And it's most clearly seen. Their their loss of love for one another. Most clearly seen in their observance of the Lord's Supper. Chapter 11, Paul says, when you come together, you're not doing, you're not observing the Lord's Supper. Because some of you are getting drunk. Some of you are hoarding all of the food. And some of you are going away hungry. And you're not discerning the body. You're not considering your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's all of what you want. Now, I can spend all day telling you why they were wrong. But as one of my preacher pastors in years gone by, I'm going to quit preaching and going to meddling right now. Are we guilty of these things? Have we ever allowed division to cloud our commitment to each other in the body? You don't agree with me here. Therefore, you can't be with me. I have served in churches, and this this has nothing to do with spirituality per se, but I have served in churches that were basically equally divided between Democrats and Republicans. And they didn't always like each other. Am I going to allow a division? Because you may not like the the songs I like. Or you may not like this translation I read from. That's going to be hard to keep in because I read from a lot, don't I? Uh, have we shown love to certain ones? There are certain people within our church that we hold up and we just love to death. And look down on others? Are we concerned about the welfare of the body of Christ in this land? Do we understand that the church in America is in deep need of renewal and revival? And are we praying for the church, not just the Baptist church? But all congregations that teach the Bible, all congregations that love the Lord, are we praying for them? Or are we only concerned about our needs? We need to take an honest look. Are we selfish Christian children trying to keep people away from our toys? Or are we living and loving as members of a body that's built on reconciliation? We have a lot of commonalities in this congregation. Part of the, because of where we're at, there's there's a good number of folks within our congregation. When Bill brought up the chaplains, it was needed because this church historically has had a lot of military and military families within it. So we have some commonalities. It was fi- when I first came here. It was kind of exciting to finally be in a church that most of the people understood the way I grew up as a military brat. But there are a lot of differences too. Uh, I get very excited about classical music. I, I actually walk to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And there are some people, for, for you to sit down and listen to three hours of classical music with me would be like pulling wisdom teeth. A lot of differences. But something that binds us together, that should bind us together, we are all equal at the foot of the cross. Because every person in this room that has faith came to Christ the same way. Well, the, the, the the direct situations may have been different, but we all came by grace through faith. And we are called, my friends, to live right now as loving members in the family of God. Now keep in mind, Christian love is not about liking each other. Jesus didn't command us to like each other. Why? Because that's pure emotion. We like people that like the same things we do, we want to hang around with people and all that kind of stuff. Now, we should work on liking one another better. But liking someone is a matter of emotion. You share the same interests, you enjoy one another's company. But Christian love, as it is outlined in this scripture, is not an act of emotion. It is an act of will. It's a commitment that says, I want to help you become all that you can be in Christ. It's about showing kindness and empathy for those who hurt. It's about being willing to carry one another's burdens. And it transcends emotions and it calls upon our hearts to have concern and commitment to one another. If we can see this come to pass within our congregation when we really do understand our call to love each other and care for each other and to build each other up, we will be well on our way to growing up. And we will make a difference here as Bay Vista Baptist Church. As we move away, please hear me carefully, as we move away from being a friendly church to be in a church that loves one another and those God brings our way. We love you. We're not just going to say hi. We want to be part of each other's lives and love. And we will show a cynical world what Christian love is really all about. And just to remind you what it's about, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads before the Lord right now. And I want you to listen very carefully. Asking yourself, is this love in me? If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have a faith that can move mountains but I have not love I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no records of wrongs, love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a way, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see, but in a, a poor reflection in a, as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part that I shall be known fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Lord, do I love like that? Please, you can look up now. And I want you to hear one of the most amazing stories of the power of Christian love I've ever read. It comes from the book The Hiding Place. Corey Boom. She and her family resisted the Nazis by hiding Jews in their home. They were ultimately discovered and sent to concentration camps. Corey barely survived until the end of the war all of her family members died in captivity. Seared by this terrible trial in life, Corrie's faith in God also survived. And she spent much of her time in the post-war years traveling in Germany and elsewhere in Europe sharing her faith in Christ. On one occasion in 1947, she was speaking at a church in Munich And she noticed a balding man in a gray overcoat near the rear of the basement room. She had been speaking on the subject of God's forgiveness. But her heart froze when she recognized the man. She could picture him as she had seen him so many times before. In his blue Nazi uniform with a visored cap. He was the cruelest of the guards at the Ravensbrook camp. Where Connie, Corey had suffered. The most horrible indignities. And where her own sister died. Yet here he was. At the end of their talk. Coming down the aisle. With his hand thrust out. Thank you for your fine message. He said. How wonderful it is to know. That all our sins. Are at the bottom of the sea. Corey said she had said that. That she had spoken so easily of God's forgiveness that here was a man whom she despised and condemned with every fiber of her being. She couldn't take his hand. She couldn't extend forgiveness to the Nazi oppressor. She realized that this man didn't remember her. How could he remember one prisoner among thousands? You mentioned Ravensbrook," The man continued, his hand still extended. I was a guard there. I'm ashamed to admit it, but it's true. But since then, I've come to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. It's been hard for me to forgive myself for all the cruel things that I did. But I know God has forgiven me. And please, if you would, I would like to hear from your lips too that God has forgiven me. And Cory wrote her response. I stood there. I whose sins had again and again been forgiven and could not forgive. It could not have been many seconds that he stood there hand held out, but it seemed to me hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. It was as simple and as horrible as that. Still I stood there with a coldness clutching my heart. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one outstretched to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, and sprang into our joined hands. And then the healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intentionally as I did then. That's the power of the love that can change our world. No, not everyone's going to come to faith. There will be people who will. When they see us loving Caring, helping like this. Then the stereotypes of what it means to be a Christian begin to crumble. And hardened hearts begin to grow soft. And the Spirit of God speaks. And the family of God is expanded. So today, do we understand that we've got to get rid of some things? Do we understand that we need to put the childish ways of life behind us? Looking forward to what is ahead for all of us and understanding our call to love one another.